Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone, I am so excited to bring you this episode with Jake Abdullah showing us how to play 8 do suited against Phil Ivey. Ivey, a mythical player in the poker world, I certainly struggled with him in the shark cage a few years ago. But before we jump into Jay Lama's 8 do suited I wanted to thank you all for your positive feedback on the grid so far. Please keep it up. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and rate and review the pod. Apparently 5 stars is pure gold in Apple currency. <laughs> I'm here with Jake, a.k.a. Jay Lama Abdallah. He is a professional poker player who has played the highest stakes in pretty much every game. Eight game mix, heads up, no limit hold'em. Got started in poker in high school and college. And when he was going to UC San Diego, he decided to focus on the game. His course on upswing, mixed games mastery, pulls back the curtain on a lot of games that were understudied and that many people want to learn more about. From the grid to the graph, Jake has a very impressive one, showing a steady climb to 1.5 million in earnings on Poker Stars from 2011 to 2017. One of his biggest years was 2014 as well as 2015, by the end of which he was playing the highest stakes online and beating Phil Ivey heads up, the American poker dream. And that realized dream takes us to this hand today, eight do suited against none other than Phil Raise Wants Ivy. Thank you, Jake, for joining me. Happy to be here. So, tell us about this hand. Set it up for us. When and where did you play this um, eight do suited against Phil Ivy? So, uh, back in 2014 and 2015, uh, Phil and I used to play a lot of heads up eight game on both Poker Stars and Full Tilt. And uh, we would uh, play, and, and we would sometimes side bet on the side and actually play bigger than the stakes. Uh, on the table and uh, so yeah this was just one of those many sessions we were playing and uh, it's a no limit hand we played heads up you were playing I noticed this was technically a six max table but you were just the only players at the table at that point yeah yeah I guess so I'm looking at the hand history here Um, it's funny because in my mind this was on a heads up table on full tilt and then when I looked back to find the hand it turned out it was on a six max table on poker stars so (laughs) More important that you remember the actual hand than those little details. But, okay, what interests me as somebody who doesn't play a lot of mix is, for players of your level, is it the same playing No Limit Hold'em in the mix, or is it a little bit hard to adjust? Well, for me personally, um, throughout 2012, I spent basically a year just playing Heads Up No Limit before switching in 2013 to mix games. So I had had a lot of experience playing... Heads up, no limit, and it was one of the one of the better games for me in the in the mix against him. Uh, so, I, I always played each game sort of as its own game. I had different you know plans and different notes on each game, so it, it wasn't it wasn't too too bad for me. Got it. All right. So, tell us the hand. What happened? We're playing heads up. I'm in the big blind. Uh, Phil's the small blind. I have 
twenty about twenty five thousand. He is about seventy thousand, so he covers me. Uh, the binds are one hundred two hundred, so I have twelve one hundred twenty something big binds. Uh, he min raises. I have the eight deuce of spades, and I decided to go for a three bet. Uh, at the time, I used a pretty polarized three betting strategy in these situations. So I'd basically look at how wide my opponent was opening and just decide uh, all the hands that were really bad but I didn't want to fold, I would three bet, and then I would correspondingly three bet some, some good hands. So the, the weaker suited hands all pretty much fell into this category of three bets. So were you pure three betting all of these weak suited hands or did you have some kind of randomization strategy? Uh, I would say the weak suited hands were pretty pure uh, for the most part. Uh, especially at the time. The, the ones I'd mix up more were some of the weaker offsuits that would be close between a fold sometimes and three bet sometimes. I think now, the, the years since, the game with solvers has evolved a little more to where people randomize and mix in more hands and, and don't go quite as polarized. But at the time, this was a pretty uh, pretty effective strategy versus how people would, would play against it. So yeah, I probably had all my eight deuce suits in this spot to three bet. So you three bet and he called, right? Yeah, he called. He min raised to 400, I made it 1400. He called, so there's 2,800 in the pot, and the flop is queen 10-4 with the queen 10 of hearts and the four of diamonds. So I have no pair, no draw, no backdoor draw apart from- Jack you know, nine. Jack nine for a bad straight or, you know, trips to pair. So I go ahead and check, you know, I would ra- raise the white flag, say, you know, this this pot's not for me, I'm not gonna, not gonna bet it. Phil thinks for a second and checks behind. So we can see a free turn. So he didn't realize you were waving the white flag. No, and you know, to be fair, I wouldn't. I don't just check full every time I check here. You know, I check good hands too, or at least hands I can check call once or twice. Uh, but in any case, he checked behind. The turn was a jack of diamonds. So now there are two flush draws out. Uh, I have neither. Ace king is the nuts, obviously. You know, I decide this is a reasonable card to bet because he's going to check behind some of his air on the flop. I would check. Uh, a good amount of my ace kings, maybe even all my ace kings at the time. I think now I would tend to mix it up a little bit more, but for the most part, I was checking ace king on on this flop at the time. So figured I, sh- I should bet, try to take it down. You know, block eight nine now, which is you know pretty exciting. So I bet about two thirds pot maybe, and uh, Phil calls. Now the river is the ace of diamonds. So the backdoor flush draw came in. Any king is a straight, and I, I start tanking for a, a little bit here because I say, well, I want to bluff some hands, but I don't want to bluff too much. I think for a while, I think, well, I think he might have, he might flat some kings on the turn, he might flat some flush draws, and we had had a bunch of hands where he had called me like pretty light on scare cards, so I decided not to go for it. Went for the check, and uh, Phil then thought a little bit, and then he decided to check, and all of a sudden the pot is just pushed my way. <laughs> It was about a $6,500 pot before the, the crossbook on the side that made it bigger. And I was pretty pretty alarmed to receive this pot. I said, is there a glitch in the software? And I opened it up, and it turns out that uh, that, that Ivy had the 5-3 of hearts. Eight plays, baby. <laughs> the eight high played. That's amazing. That, that, that's got to be one of the most memorable hands uh, you've ever played against Phil Ivy, huh? Yeah, that was the, the most delight I was ever to win a pot where <laughs> I just thought there was... A 0% chance I was getting any chips out of it. And uh, yeah, won the whole pot. So he, he flopped a, 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 a low flush draw. And decided not to bet it, which is, is okay. I probably would mostly bet it, but uh, it's reasonable. And then, yeah, the turn he called. And the river, 
for whatever reason, he must have had some sort of read on the amount of time I tanked before I checked or something. And he just decided not to fire there and uh, worked out pretty well for me. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so if you want to win some pots with 8-high, you got to really tank to get people to <laughs> check back the 5-high. That's definitely the takeaway. <laughs> I mean, this is one of these examples, I think, that... You know, you've created a course on upswing, and, and Doug often talks about how people remember the times that they got the reads right, and they forget about the times that they got the read wrong. And this is just like another example of that, right? That he's obviously thinking about your tank, meaning that it signifies you have a, a tough check call or something. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. I mean, that's the problem with reads is I, I do think, you know, some people are, are quite good at them, but they, you know, you're wrong a lot. They're only worth so much, and if they make you do something super crazy... It might, it might be a mistake. <laughs> well, and Phil Ivey, of course, is right more than pretty much anyone in the live read department. But because this is online, maybe less reliable. Now, sometimes you mentioned that you did speak on Skype during your sessions. I take it that there wasn't any live reads in this case. You weren't on Skype. <laughs> no, yeah. Only, only a handful of times was, was Skype on while we were actually playing. I, I, I wouldn't have wanted to do that for too many hands because he's got the the superpowers and I, I'd much rather play behind a computer screen against Phil Ivey than uh, with him giving me his crazy eyes and just deciding he can read my mind. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling if this was live streamed or Skyped, he would have bet the river. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So seriously though, did you feel like if you bet this eight high on the river, if you bet like all of your um, eight highs, terrible hands that you would be over bluffing? Like, and what was the rationale be- behind checking this specific combo? Well, I, I guess it depends sort of how many bluffs you have that check the flop and bet the turn. Uh, in this case, there's probably not that many, so it's there's a pretty good case to continue bluffing with this hand. Because, I mean, I do have a bunch of other really weak hands, but a lot of those don't decide to bet the turn. They would check again and maybe bluff the river. So this is actually a pretty good candidate to go ahead and bluff again with. I just, in, in the game, made the decision that he had, you know, he had been calling me on, in certain situations more than more than I expected. And uh, I also I also used to occasionally play with a, a random number generator where I would decide like the percent out of 100 I wanted to bet a river and then click the button and see if it came up and just do it that way. To also make it much harder to sort of develop exploitable patterns and have people get a read on you. And I don't remember whether or not I used it this hand since it was a few years ago. But let's say there's a 50-50 chance that I uh, use a random number generator here. All right, well, let's use a random number generator to determine whether you used a random number generator. <laughs> but uh, seriously, you would have been betting like 80% or something, and if it comes like 1 to 20, you would check, and, you know, 21 to 99, you would bet? Is that... Yeah, exactly. That's how I would use it. And how do you... Because I know you've played live as well. You don't play a lot of live tournaments, but you do play the 10K heads up, usually the dealer's choice events, the main event. When you get a, a spot like this, live and you want to randomize what do you do well it's a lot hard to do live um some people have done things like look at their watch or you can also decide beforehand if you want to use certain suits so for example for an offsuit hand you could say if the high card's a club i'm gonna use this as a bluff when otherwise i wouldn't and that'll give you 25 or yeah 25 percent if the high card's a club say either card's a club that's half your combos that's one way to do it. Beyond breaking it down into quarters and halves with suits, uh, you have to get get fancy. And I mostly don't try to do that because it's just a lot of effort. 
And live, you do have a lot of other information to think about. So you can think about how the person is, you know, how they look, how they handle their chips, what you know about them. And, and uh, if, if you don't play a lot, you also have some solace in the fact that they're not out there building this database against you and every action you make on every river. And you can kind of just decide in the moment what you think might be the best play. Although it does seem like people do have a lot of issues with that because if they're now forced to rely on their own humanity to decide what to do, they might just drastically over or under bluff. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> My preference is to use, you know, use the humanity in the, in the marginal cases, but uh, be very vigilant that you're not sort of letting your, your, your humanity guide you beyond what sort of is reasonable within the parameters of what's theoretically correct. Tell me more about this dynamic you had with Phil Ivey. I, I do think that this is in some ways the poker dream to not only win a lot of money in poker, which you have done, but also to prove yourself against the, the very best. Um, and with eight high, no, no less. Like as a kid, if you fantasized about beating Phil Ivey with a hand like eight high, you would have assumed that you'd be bluffing him with it, right? Or at least calling. <laughs> Check is the distant third that you'd imagine as the uh, the dream scenario, but. <laughs> but sorry, that started off as a question about your dynamic with Phil Ivy online. Before I started playing him, I'd, I'd moved up the stakes and I was playing almost everyone heads up, and you know he sat one day and I was you know I was I was like oh I guess I'll give this a shot I don't know how good he's going to be he's supposed to be the best and I was able to get some volume in and. Uh, do some statistical work on sort of how he was playing in different games and feel comfortable enough to keep playing him. All the games we had, he actually beat me in five out of the eight games um, for relatively small amounts in each game. Uh, in one game, I beat him for a small amount, but then in No Limit and PLO, I beat him for very large amounts. So on net, it was it was a very uh, successful matchup for me. Looking back at the hands, like a year or two later, I actually got a lot better at the, the games, especially the games I lost in. I got a lot better from playing him because looking back, I thought I played pretty badly relative to how I, how I played now or a couple of years ago. So it was definitely like a really, it was a really good learning experience for me uh, with a lot of the limit games particularly. And this was before, of course, you made your, your course on mixed games. Which mixed games did you feel like you got kind of taught some key lessons from him by? Uh, I would say uh, all the stud games and actually Limit Hold'em, which I had a lot of experience in, he played a lot differently than almost anyone I had played. And so I, I learned a bunch about sort of that style. It was like three betting, like almost half of hands, a little less than half of hands, when the standard around that time was like maybe more like 25% of hands. And uh, so that, that definitely threw me off at first. And I learned a lot about that. And then, uh, yeah, Omaha 8 and Triple Draw. I forget which one I won and which one he won, but uh, both of those I improved quite a bit before and after, or during and after when I played him. But I would say probably the th probably Stud and Stud 8 were the two where I learned the most, where I was probably the worst and he was a lot better, and he did a lot of things that I wasn't doing. And uh, I, I had to, like, do some work away from the table to figure out how to sort of either copy it or respond to it. 
Nice. Can you give us a specific example of something he was doing? Well, you mentioned the 50% three-bet range in Limit Hold'em, but it's not like you actually adopted that. You just learned how to play against it. Any other like specifics of something he was doing that you actually completely incorporated into your own game? Yeah, so a good example, well, including that, but also in other games where he would re-raise a lot. In, in Stud 8, I guess it's called a two-bet because the first one's called Complete. Um, but, you know, colloquially, it's the same thing, sort of raise, three bet. And so he did a lot of that in all those games. I learned that uh, I could implement that versus a certain type of player who was sort of opening a lot, but not forebaying a lot and not being super aggressive later in the street, just because you get to realize more of your equity, you get more fold equity. You don't really get punished that much if they're not re-raising pre or, or raising you all the time on the next street. So really to adjust to that, you have to be a lot more aggressive, especially like on third street or pre-flop and on the flop or fourth street, depending on what game we're talking about. Because you really just have to pile more bets in with your pretty good hands instead of being super like polarized, like, oh, okay, I'll bluff with these and these are my really good hands. Uh, if the person is playing really loose and you're not sort of fighting back with like more of the upper middle of your range, you're just not making the pots big enough to compensate for the extra pots they're going to get to win when you have to eventually fold. You're chats with Phil Ivey, like you got to know him for this experience of playing so many hours of heads up? Yeah, I wouldn't say I knew him super well, but we would occasionally talk on uh, on Skype. He called me once when he was playing uh, Isildur and just kind of mentioned he was playing Isildur. And it was about a, a two-minute conversation, but uh, I haven't really spoken to him uh, much since since those days. And you mentioned that you were cross-booking with him, and I, I couldn't help but wonder, if you're playing um, six mags, is the purpose of the cross-book to hide in the stakes, but still allow other people to come in, and then would the cross-book be canceled? Like, how does that work? Like, even though this table was six max, we didn't really play much six max together. Maybe a handful of times we weren't side betting or anything. Most of the time we played on heads-up tables, and... Uh, and yeah, we just cross-broke to make the stakes bigger than you could play online, basically. The problem is, of course, you're putting lots of trust, but obviously you fully trusted each other. How much of a cross-book was on this particular session? So we had different ones over the over the different sessions. I believe in this one it was something like four times the stakes in addition, so like total 5x the stakes. So yeah, that so that pot of 6,500 was probably like... 30,000? 36,000? Okay, so 5x on top of the stakes. Wow. And... Yeah, that's obviously something you would only do against somebody that you trusted 100%. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he had, he had really remembered meeting me, so he, he kind of just took a chance there. But generally, a lot of trust between people that play high stakes. It's a relatively small community, and if one person does something, word gets around, and then people avoid them. So, yeah, I was I was happy that he, uh, he trusted me to do it, and I trusted him to do it, and it all worked out. And it's not something you did with a lot of people. This like these like huge cash games that you also cross booked online. Is this pretty unique? Yeah, this is pretty unique. Most other people were happy to play whatever the high stakes were, which would go pretty high on their own. So <laughs> after you won this hand with the eight high, like and you recovered from the confusion of realizing that you won it, did you scream? Like, <laughs> what was your celebration like? I'm trying to remember exactly. I I probably did sort of shout something out. My wife was probably in the next room and probably just heard me yelling like whoa unbelievable which she probably heard all day every day at one time or another so i'm sure she didn't really take too much note of it (laughs) then then you probably started texting people though right probably sent the hand history to a couple friends 
it sounds like there wasn't really much intimidation factor even online against well particularly online against phil ivy because you had had so much success up to that point yeah that helped and also just having like a good sort of grasp around the 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 data the data aspect i had a, a program that was similar to poker tracker but was formatted so it would work on other games so i could actually look through statistics for the stud games and triple draw in addition to the other games so i could do a lot of work away from the table and see like how much someone was opening how much they were you know four betting or how, how they were responding which streets they were folding on more raising more and so i would spend a lot of time updating those looking through and then making like detailed game plans for each game or it'd be like a series of notes as well as like a sort of pre-flop strategy of how much i wanted to be doing each action and i would just kind of fine-tune that all the time to try to keep up with all the, the latest way they were playing i will say that his his gameplay overall definitely changed over time while we played by the end of it he was a lot better i think at the uh the no limit and plo than he was at the beginning i think those were still good games for me in the lineup but his uh his game definitely improved over time as, as did mine so you know i think we both got something out of it yeah well i guess improving quickly is probably you know adjusting quickly improving quickly it's probably one of the ingredients to be super successful um how do you think the hand might be played by two really elite heads-up players today? I think today people don't... Most three-bet ranges, as I was saying, they're a little they're a little more mixed. You wouldn't necessarily just always three-bet eight-deuce suited, but you might sometimes. So to start with, you'd probably have a few less eight-deuce suited. Uh, the other thing is, I think players will three-bet to a larger size, especially when 100 big blinds or more deep. So I think the size would have been bigger. Um, on his side, with 5-3 suited... Uh, that's a hand that different people I've I mean I've seen people fold it I've seen people call it I've seen people four bet it even so I'm not really sure I think they're all kind of reasonable and possible for any to see any of those happen I think giving up on the flop is pretty reasonable with my hand uh, if I have a backdoor flush draw maybe maybe betting small and barreling on a good card I think him with five three suited with the flu- the low flush draw I think you'd mostly want to bet the flop. Uh, just because you have, you know, you have enough equity to call check raise, you don't get check raise that much, and you're happy to see a fold. Uh, but, but you know, I'm sure Solver would say to you know check it 20% of the time or something. So it, it's not unreasonable to check it either. And then from that point in the hand, I mean, I think someone would bluff somewhere on the river. One of us probably should be bluffing the river, and that player should be winning the pot. <laughs> so you feel like you should bet. The river most of the time, but if you do check, Phil should always bet the river. Yeah, as played, yeah. Got it. And I think, yeah, this is just like such a great hand. But uh, I gotta ask, uh, I know that you're a big mixed games pro, um, but you also obviously love No Limit Hold'em. There's lots of people who listening to this who play No Limit Hold'em exclusively. Maybe they play a little PLO, maybe they play PLO. What do you think they're missing out in terms of learning strategies for No Limit um, from some of the mixed games? Like what does it open their eyes to? And which one do you think people should get started with? I think to, to get started into all the mixed games, probably deuce to seven, triple draws, the best one to start with, because that's gonna be in like all the mixes. It's a limit game, which takes some getting used to if you've only played big bet games. And then a lot of games, uh, especially in like the more crazier live mixes with a whole bunch of games in them, a lot of them build off that game. So 
you go from that, then you can change it to ace to five low ball, which is just like a different hand ranking system. But then you also have the ones that are like Badoogie, which is a four card game. And then there's the hybrid draw games, which is Badoosie and Badasi, where you add triple draw and Badoogie together. And so to really, really start learning any of those, it, it makes the most sense to start with uh, Deuce of Seven triple draw. Uh, from that point, I would say probably you could want to get into one of the stud games, maybe Raz. Although I don't, I don't know if the order matters too much, but maybe Raz, stud, and stud eight is, is how I did it in my course, just because stud eight is kind of combining the two other games. So you kind of start with each, each component. That's interesting. I'm kind of glad you said that because I've asked Bill Chen this question before and he always says limit hold'em. And, you know, it's not the most exciting answer. I feel like if people are playing no limit, I understand why he's saying like fundamentally to learn like the different betting structures, it's the one to start with, but it's usually no limit hold'em players, like they're kind of bored of playing with two cards. (laughs) So they want like a more exciting answer, right? Yeah. And yeah, and that's a reasonable answer. But I mean, one one thing about limit hold'em is that it's quite a bit different than No Limit, and you have to get used to, like, you have to just kind of get used to a different sort of betting. Like, you'll make a value bet that might not, like, might get called and lose way more often than it wins, but it could still be the right play. Because, like, if you're, especially if you're out of position, the pot's a certain size, you could bet knowing that if you check, all their better hands are going to bet, and some of their bluffs, and if you don't want to fold, but they don't have very many raises, you might as well just bet because even though they're going to call and beat you a lot, sometimes they're going to call you with a bluff catcher that wouldn't have bet, and you'll get that extra bet in. And if the alternative is check calling because you're getting whatever, 10 to 1, you're more often than not just better off putting the bet in yourself just so you, some of the time you get that extra bet out of the pot. Well, that sounds interesting because I remember in Matthew Janda's book, I feel like there's like a similar principle in No Limit Hold'em as well. When you're out of position, basically kind of like the recent position is so good that you can just check back, right? You're using a small size that can apply in no limit as well. Uh, but in no limit, there's always the risk that then, you know, you bet small, now they can, some of their bluff catchers can become bluffs, and now you get, you know, t- block torn off your hand pretty easily. Whereas in limit, it's, you know, if you think they're doing that a lot, it's just one more bet to call. In that case, you're actually making two bets instead of one by betting sort of a marginal value hand if, if you're bet calling it instead of checking. Oh, you know what? It might have been a pot size bet situation. I don't know. I, it, there was some theory he was talking about with that. And I mean, one of the big things with limit is just getting used to the fact that like, you're going to show down a lot. Um, you're like, you're going to call also in situations where you're almost never winning. But with the right odds, it's it's like, they need to be bluffing less than 10% of the time to make it a call in some of these situations. So it's just like, you just have to pay stuff off. And then I almost say when people are learning that they should get in the habit of just always paying off in all the spots where they're like, well, I have to be beat, but I have something. I can think of one bluff. And then once they get more experience, they can start sort of working in some selective folds in those situations where they're like really sure, like, okay, he, he, he has it like, really all the time here, not just 85% of the time. That's like a difficult transition from no limit, where if you thought someone had it 85% of the time and they were betting big, you would just fold and be like, well, I'm not I'm not getting owned here because he usually has it. Whereas in limit, you might be getting owned if, if he's bluffing you 15% of the time for, for one bet. So what about just a seven? Is that your favorite game then? Just because you led with it, you said that that was the one we should start with. I don't know if I have necessarily a favorite game. Deuce to seven is, is a lot of fun. The thing about Deuce of Seven is it's not that hard to get like pretty good at it. So most people that play that play with any regularity aren't terrible. 
um, everyone gets pretty good fairly fast. And then to get really good, you have to like put in a lot of extra work for like a, a relatively small uh, benefit. But I mean, you know, in poker, especially in 2019, most edges aren't that crazy. So it's, it's worth getting very good at everything. But yeah, uh, that, that's, that's, and that's another reason it's a good game to start with because it's not that hard to get to a level of relative competence and then you have you can build off that more quickly. That sounds very appealing, I think, to some of our listeners because that means like you could learn Deuce to Seven and you could just like hop in, depending on your bankroll, of course, like you could hop into a WSOP 1K or, you know, sometimes the local casinos are doing mixed games as well with some confidence knowing that like you're learning but you have some basics. Yeah, for sure. And then you, you, you'll still have sort of more recreational players from time to time and those things that are making pretty obvious mistakes that you can spot relatively early on if, if you start studying the game a little bit and uh, yeah, especially those lower tournaments and that, that's always that's always fun. Or an online tournament of course like a scoop or WCOOP event where you can play the medium or, or low in these in these games. I think it's tough I think for most players to incorporate mix into their online sessions unless they're willing to forego no limit for that session. That can be a tough trade-off for some people. Yeah, playing a lot of different games at once, especially games that are, are, are new to you, is very difficult. I was saying if you're not Sean Deeb, it's probably difficult even if you're experienced. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, probably the best way to learn is to fire up some low stakes cash and get used to it when you're maybe not playing a bunch of tournaments at the same time. Or, you know, just taking a day where you just play a few of different things and not have, you know, the... Uh, the 10 tables going or what have you or the different games just commit to playing like deuce to seven for that session what do you think primarily no limit hold'em players will learn from incorporating something like deuce to seven into their game are there some like tactics that might carry over to the game that they actually play i feel like whenever you learn a new game sometimes it opens your eyes to some new strategy trick or something it is a very different game than no limit hold'em i mean the different bank structure different number of cards so well i think that you know any game helps you be better and helps you to learn subsequent games moving forward. I think that like limit games probably help you more with other limit games and big bet games help you more with other big bet games to a degree. I mean, because even if the games are the same card wise, the betting strategies are going to be rather dramatically different when, you know, you can push someone off their equity quite easily or when you're just sort of fine-tuning how many bets are going to win or lose. I'd, I would say that Deuce of Seven is a good gateway to sort of start getting into the other limit games, and uh, I'm not sure if by itself it's going to help you play Null and Hold'em better. If I was going to do the grid about a mixed game, but some kind of like variation of the grid, because obviously it wouldn't work with hand, like, you know. A hundred thousand hand. That would be my strategy to live forever. Can't die in the middle of a show. <laughs> you have to find a lot of different people. It's like, oh, I need, I'm looking for someone for the 98743. Oh, mine's a 97.4 deuce. Like, you gotta find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so, it wouldn't really work with any other game, I don't think. Well, there's always Limit Hold'em. True, true. But, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't said that people couldn't bring a Limit Hold'em hand on this. That's, you know, same number of combinations, you know. They, they, we can bring in an uh, LAT hand into this pot at some point. <laughs> I think that recently you haven't been playing as much poker, right? So, what have you been doing? You want to tell us a little bit about any of your projects? I haven't played any online since uh, Scoop of 2017, so more than two years now. Uh, I still play a bunch during the World Series in Vegas. I live out here. 
very little during the year. Maybe a little more than once a month I have to go and play live. Otherwise, I've moved more into sort of business and investing type of stuff. Uh, I helped a friend of mine launch a, a CBD extraction company where they take uh, hemp plants and turn them into oils and powders essentially. And that's gone really well. It's like probably the biggest one in the world now. And so I'm a little bit involved with that. Is that as much fun as poker or is like, do you miss like the kind of like, even though it sounds like you're doing really well from a business perspective, do you miss kind of like the drama and personalities of poker? Uh, a little bit. I probably miss the most battling heads up online, which to me was really fun because you get good volume in and then you like get all these like ways to do data analytics to make yourself better the next time. And that process was always really fun to me. And just like sort of the instant gratification of sitting down and like playing almost every hand, not like waiting around you know, to get a playable hand type of thing, just like the constant nonstop action. I really like that. And just the fact that you could like make counter strategies, implement them, adjust them, and like do it all very like acutely. Where six max, you can do that stuff, but it takes longer. It takes longer to get sort of the sample you need. And like, if you make like a really good strategy against one guy in six max, it's like, is that strategy good in any seat he's in compared to any seat you're in? So there's a lot of variability there. And then if you have something worked out anyway, then like how often are you actually even playing like a heads up hand with him that you've sort of planned out for? It's, it's just like, it takes a lot longer to sort of execute on on your away from the table work when you have to sort of put in a lot of volume to get to those situations and recognize them. So that that's what I always like really enjoyed about playing heads up was just the, the immediacy of the sort of adjustment, impact, new data process was just ongoing. I found it harder to find uh, to find games towards the end when I was playing online, uh, especially the higher stakes. Uh, a lot of the American players either, you know, relocated or stopped playing, and then the ones that relocated either got good or went broke, uh, and that was kind of a process with high stakes online with like less fresh blood coming into it. You found out a lot of people would either like a few of them would get really good and then a bunch of them would stop playing. And so towards the end, only like the top five guys would, would give me action and it wasn't as, the, the ceiling became a lot lower of how much I could win and I would have to work twice as hard to, to beat them at all. And maybe I wouldn't beat them because they're all really good players. So it, it just didn't make sense for me to keep traveling all the time out of the country to keep doing it. I also really love playing heads up, I think, as a chess player. I think the things that you were describing about the directness of the aggression, that you're just preparing for one guy and you're trying to dismantle his strategies. Whereas when you're playing against a lot of people once, it's just so hard to zero in like that. And sometimes it's almost easier, even though it's a very difficult game. It's just like, I love that aspect of it as well, which got me to thinking, maybe you should start playing some chess. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, have you ever played six max chess? I've heard it's... Uh... Not the easiest game. <laughs> That's funny, actually. I mean, I do like play a lot of simuls because, you know, when you're a chess champion, uh, they often want you to come out and play like a lot of people at once so that everybody right. gets the experience of playing you. But it's not like we're all playing each other at the same time, yeah. which would, you know, be more analogous to poker, right? I played a little bit of chess when I was young. Not a ton, just a bit. Then I had a friend, uh, I had a friend that was pretty good at it when we were like 15. And uh, it's actually the friend that started the the CBD company, but I went to Switzerland with him when we were 15, and we played a we played a version of drinking chess, which is a good time. And uh, <laughs> he would start down a rook, and I once beat him up a rook, and that's pretty much the last uh, chess accomplishment I have under my belt. <laughs> How weak would a player have to be 
that you could forgo X percentage of buttons and still win? It would depend on the game, but they're back in the day in heads up no limit, the weaker regs were just losing out of the, on the button uh, to the strongest regs and maybe didn't realize it. So you could actually sort of hustle. Uh, I mean, a few people could hustle someone by saying, oh, I'll give you uh, two to one buttons. And just they're still losing every hand, so it didn't matter. Would that be like a live thing? I definitely remember in 2014 or 2015, Doug talking about making this offer to people where he like he already knew he was beating them out of the big blind. And I don't know if anyone ever took him up on it, but that would have been... That would have been an interesting one to watch. Man, Jake, this hand is really going to be hard to top. Eight, do suited. Beating Phil on the river. You've set the bar very high. <laughs> well, maybe you can get him on here to talk about uh, five, three suited. What do you think my odds are of that? Less than 15%, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> I put it in the single digits, though. You miss all the shots that you don't take. <laughs> Good point, good point. <laughs> but seriously, this is about you. Eight do suited. You played all the games and you won in all of them. Not everybody knows that because you haven't won any bracelets. I only have one final table at a World Series, the Dealer's Choice event uh, three or four years ago. I don't play a ton of tournaments. I've played the 50K maybe the last four years. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jake, for, for joining me. One of the greatest online players that you may have heard of, but now you got to know him a little bit better. Um, check out his course and also follow him on Twitter where he'll keep you up to date. JLama999. Right. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. No, never, never saga. Believe it. I'm the real thing. Burn.